we're at a variety of maturity levels. We've got some parts of the organization that are very, very mature, and even some of their security practices are very mature. And so we give them autonomy and we say, why don't you guys go do this? And then we'll actually learn from you what you're doing. And we'll take that and spread that across the enterprise. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Omar Kawaja, CISO at Highmark Health, and he and I are having a fantastic conversation about trust-centric security, why it's better than tech-centric security, and how it contributes to culture and effective controls. I have to tell you, this conversation is very compelling, and I am learning so much concrete and specific guidance towards improving my CISO game here. I think you'll enjoy this conversation as well. Omar, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Alan, thanks for having me at the ranch. It's nice to be here. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. So why don't you briefly tell us a bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about your day job? Yeah, I've been in my role at Highmark Health leading the security program for almost eight years, which I think in terms of cyber that would uh, qualify me for dinosaur status. In addition to what I do at Highmark Health, which is a variety of different businesses, we've got multiple insurance companies. We're the Blue Cross Blue Shield for four different states. We also have a dental insurance company. We have an employer's company. We've got one of the uh, largest print shops in the country that, uh, that we run. We also have about uh, 14 hospitals. Our most recent one was open within just uh, the last couple of weeks north of Pittsburgh. And we also have a tech services company. So I, so I feel like I've had the opportunity to work in a few different verticals, uh, having been at Highmark. And in the past year, I think we've gone through probably eight or so, or probably more, almost a dozen M&A activities as well. So things keep changing. The size of the organization is double what it was when I first joined um, years ago. And in addition to serving in my role in my day job at Highmark, I also serve on the boards of High Trust and the uh, FAIR Institute. And one of my favorite things to do is I get to teach in Carnegie Mellon's CSO program. And I've been doing that for about uh, six years or seven years now as well. I get the hospital and insurance collusion, right? But print shop, that's wild. So you've actually got, I mean, you're not kidding about the verticals. There's manufacturing there. If a print shop that big goes down, dollars are, dollars are ticking with every minute of downtime. Like that's, that's a true manufacturing proposition. It absolutely is. It um, does not, even though a lot of what we're printing content wise may have healthcare data on it, but in terms of the actual activities that they're engaged in, it looks nothing like healthcare. It looks a lot more like manufacturing. What a great background on eight years in the same role is admirable. I wouldn't call it dinosaur. I would call that admirable. <laughs> Thank That's you really for that cool. branding. I love it. So, all right. So we talked about, uh, we, you and I had a bit of a conversation before the show and you were talking about tech-centric security versus trust-centric security. So let's start with what's wrong with tech-centric security and let's start there. Yeah. You know, to put technology at the center of security is where we sometimes lose sight of the actual outcomes that we're trying to drive. That doesn't mean we don't need technology. They're at the scale that we're doing things without technology, we're not going to be successful. But the goal isn't to deploy technical controls. The goal is to 
deliver outcomes for the business to be running without disruption, for our customers, stakeholders to feel like their data, their assets in, are in a safe pair of hands. And in those endeavors, we may need to employ technology. Oftentimes, what I find, and, and I'm guilty of making some of these mistakes myself as well, is we start with the technology. And then we try to find different problems that that mm -hmm. technology can solve. That sort of is tech-centric security that is not necessarily serving us well. However, when we start with the business problems we have and we come upon a piece of technology that can help us, that's perfectly fine. The way I, I like to think about it is technology is part of the path that we're going on. It is not the destination. And when you're going on a journey, you have to start with the destination and then you select the appropriate path to get there. I find often what we do in the world of security is we define the path that we're going to take. And sometimes that's animated by the different technologies that we are excited about. And then when we ask the question, what are we going to get out of this? The response often is, well, how would we know? We're not there yet. Once we've deployed the technology, we've run it, we've executed it, we'll let you know what we get out of it. But until then, what do you think? Like, I don't have a crystal ball. How would I know? Well, that's pretty absurd thinking. I'm going on vacation at the end of the year. And if I told my kids, I don't know where we're going. I mean, do I have a crystal ball or something? Well, no, I don't. But I mean, that's what you call planning. You decide on a destination and you set a path that gets you to your destination. And if you've got some surprises along the way, you uh, course correct. I like that. I, I'm thinking through my own brain when I've done that in the past. Like, I think Sassy is probably a good example. You know you need to fix your edge problem, but then it's like, what are we going to do with Sassy? Well, we could do all kinds of stuff with it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of the response, right? Yeah, yeah. You may have a specific thing you're fixing up front, right? It's a little more than no plan at all. But then after that, well, sky's the limit with this tool. We can do all kinds of things. Yeah, that's a fair example. On that point, like I could tell you, I've had many conversations and I've got the notebooks filled with notes where I've gotten super excited meeting with the CTO of an organization and they tell me about their technology because I'm an engineer at heart. So that stuff is really compelling to me. And I'll start writing all my ideas down for, wait, I could use this technology for this and I could use it for this and I could use it for that. That's awesome. Let's go buy technology X. And then four years later, I'll look at what are we actually using the technology for? It turns out not much. Right. Certainly not my level of excitement when I was learning about the technology versus my level of excitement four years having deployed the technology, there's a very, very large chasm between the two. Right. And a lot of it is because the goal, the way that I set it up was to deploy the technology. It wasn't to deliver the business outcome. It wasn't to deliver the use cases. So one of the super simple things that we do as an, as an alternate to that, Alan, is in my organization, if anyone comes to me and has a request for resources or for budget or for time, and it has the name of a vendor, the name of a technology, or an acronym in it, it's automatically denied. Oh, interesting. And the reason for that is we've had many, many situations over the years. For instance, we had WAF deployed, and we were super excited that we got it deployed a few years Later, we identified some vulnerabilities in a few of our web applications. And I said, well, that's no big deal if the application teams are saying they've got a lot else going on and they're not going to be able to put the defects into the upcoming release and they need a little bit extra time to get these uh, get this into the release and test it out. 
we've got WAF. We can virtually patch these applications. That's exactly what WAF is for. And then the team came back and said, Omar, we, we, we can't use the WAF. I said, oh, you mean you can't use it in blocking mode? That That's okay. I understand. Well, why don't we just do it, uh, enable it in monitor-only mode? So if someone does attempt to exploit those unpatched vulnerabilities in the web application, we'll be notified and we can prevent harm for before the attackers get too far into the environment and steal steal our data. So that's good enough. And that'll hold us over for a few weeks. And they said, Omar, we can't do that. I'm like, what do you mean we can't do that? We have the WEF. It's on our network and it's protecting the applications. We installed the WEF. It's been years. And they're like, yeah, but we didn't really configure any of the applications to be like monitored through it. Like, so then what did we mean when we said we implemented the WAF? We're like, that's what we meant. We implemented the WAF. We installed the WAF. And like, so you're saying for the last four years, the only value the WAF has been delivering is it's been keeping our data center slightly warmer. (laughs) And so after that, I'm like, you know, and, and engineers, we sort of are literalists. Like I said, install the WAF, you install the WAF. I didn't say go secure these applications with the WAF. I didn't say go monitor them, go block bad things from happening via the WAF. So yeah, technically speaking, I didn't use those words. So, you know, you caught me. And so the way around that is now if someone said, Omar, there's this new technology called the WAF and it's going to be awesome for us. I'm going to say, why is it going to be awesome for us? What is it going to do for us? Why do we care? When we have it fully implemented, what are we going to get out of it? And the answers that come after a few of those so what's and why's, I'm like, that's what you want to call the project. You want to call the project virtually patch applications, virtually patch 12 web applications within minutes. Are you interested in investing in that? I'm interested in investing in that. I don't care if you use toasters, whatever you're going to use to get to that outcome, that's worth investing in. Right. And this is what you call trust-centric security, where you're, you're, you're targeting... You're targeting the outcome, but trust-centric has a specific phrase to it too. Why don't you walk me through what that means for you? Yeah, and and, and you know the idea is as you move away from technology-centric, you then say, okay, well maybe there's there's certain control objectives I need to meet, and a control objective may be around securing web applications. So the WAF just becomes a technology that could do that. I could do patching, and I could do SAST. I could have multiple different technologies that can help me with that same control and. Those control objectives are, are really valuable as well. And then, you know, you keep on going and then you get to risk-centric security. And risk-centric security is where it's no longer just about uh, what is the thing, the insecure thing I'm going to solve for by implementing some control or some technology. But now I'm also looking at what's the benefit of doing so. So security is just prevent the bad thing from happening. Risk is, yes, I'm going to prevent the bad thing from happening, but what's the benefit of that? And what's the benefit if I don't prevent the bad thing from happening? So it's now looking at two sides of the equation, not just focusing on the harm, but focusing on the benefit too and weighing the two against each other. Trust-centric goes one step further. Trust-centric is no longer about what's good for me. It's no longer about what's good for the business because when we think about benefit accruing, it's typically the benefit is accruing to the business. Trust-centric is... Now I only care about the customer Mm. because for most organizations, certainly organizations in the services business, certainly a healthcare organization like Highmark Health, that relationship with that customer, the response and the, the feeling that the customer has when they engage with us is really, really important. And if they feel like 
we're not someone that can be relied upon, someone that isn't worthy of their trust, then there's not much else we can do to be delivering value successfully to our customers. So one of our core behaviors at Highmark is customer first. And so when I think about security, I think about, well, how do I make security customer first? And that's where things like trust then uh, then come into play. It's making decisions really as if the customer were in the room and saying, what would be the best interest of the customer? How does this decision actually increase our trust with a customer? All right. So we, we've gone out in levels of thinking, but we're actually starting it in reverse. You start with the trust, you go to the risk, you then go to the control. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the way I think of it is it is that continuum. And we started off as being very tech centric. Then we looked at controls. Then we said, well, it's not just a bunch of controls that we think are good, but how do we make sure we've got all the right sufficient controls? So then we look at compliance and compliance is interesting, but when you get to the third and the fourth and the fifth compliance requirement, you want to start to pull your hair out. So then we take all the different compliance requirements, we harmonize them into a single framework. In the world of healthcare, we're super fortunate to have high trust enable that for us. So our program is really based on high trust controls. And when the state of Delaware comes out with a new law or the EU comes out with a new law or the state of PA or state of California, we're not super worried about what those requirements are. The only question we ask is, high trust, did you update your framework to incorporate them? And then the next time we go into the framework, we just say, these are the different uh, compliance requirements we care about. And you know you do that, and then you get to risk, and we start to quantify risk. We leverage frameworks like Fair, and then we get to we get to the the customer centric or the the trust centric piece. And and Ellen, I I don't think you can get to that level without having gone through everything else. So all of those things are important, and you kind of build on them. They're almost like Russian nesting dolls. Right. You can't build the bigger doll without first having the smaller doll. And then you just keep going and going and going, but you absolutely need the technology. You need the controls. You need the compliance. You need the vendors. You need the identities. You need the data. You need the risk. You need all of that. And you put it all together and then get to what I think is the the ultimate. And maybe in a year or two, I'll learn from smarter people that there's something else. But for now, it feels like that's the ultimate goal is how do you get to trust centric security? I like that. And it, 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 you know, when I hear that, my first thought is we always talk about a CISO's business alignment. And it seems like if you're going with this trust centric model, you're putting the customer forward and first, your business alignment should be pretty tidy as well, shouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. So, you know, it used to be, we talked to the business and say, what do you care about? Now we talk to the business and we say, who are the customers? What do they care about? And then the business says, wait, those are the same questions we ask. Right. And we're like, okay, well, we can be aligned because we'll just skip to what you're asking. So if everyone's asking about the customer and what they care about, we're going to be in good shape. I, you know, we had an incident last night and I got a, a call from one of our, one of our uh, executive leaders. And the first question I asked is, who are the customers involved? And what is the impact going to be to them and how many of them? And it turned out it was one of our third parties that got hit by ransomware. And we have data to be able to take care of our customers for a certain period of time. Beyond that, we don't have access to any of the data. So if we don't recover the information from the third party, we're going to not be able to deliver care to some of these patients. And I said, okay, tell me more about these patients. How sick are they? They're very sick. So last night when I talked to my 
incident response team, they said, well, you know, Mar, we've got process. We need to bring in privacy. We need to bring in third-party risk on and on. I said, look, here's the thing you need to understand. In this situation, patient treatment is going to be directly impacted because we don't know who our patients are and what treatment they need, which means we're not going to be able to deliver care. And they're expecting us to show up at their home to be able to deliver care. So if you need to skip a process step, if you need to do whatever you need to, because right now the goal is let's make sure that there isn't a single patient that has to skip their treatment because we couldn't get to the scheduling database that tells us what treatment that patient needed and what their home address is. Right. That's a fantastic way to look at it. I'm going through my past experiences, especially when I was in services, data services, I had customers galore. And to your point, the ransomware never hit us, but the ransomware might hit something adjunct to us, might have some sort of a compelling aspect. And that was always my first question was I would get on the phone with the customer CISO and ask them, what's the impact to you? What is, what is going on in your world? And you know, if yeah. it was manufacturing, of course, the clock was ticking. If it was healthcare, to your point, so let's immediately talk about backup systems. And yeah, we can go to paper and that'll sustain us for X days or whatever it might be. And, you know, so yes, put that customer first, get into that mindset, learn the impact to them, and then build your incident response program around those targeted results. That's definitely the model that I used. Yeah. Over time, you end up arriving at that sort of naturally and you know, the thing I always think about is how do we do that faster? How do I make sure that the managers and directors on my team don't make some of the same mistakes I made? So how do I help them create some of that mindset that it took me years to get and they can start with that? So in a few years, I could be learning from them because their starting point was much further along than mine was. All right, let's pause right there for a brief word from our sponsor. The complexity of cloud infrastructure means every organization's security challenges are unique. Whether your challenge is threat hunting, policy management, cloud workload protection, or all of the above, Uptix helps you quickly identify and eliminate observability gaps in your security program. That's Uptix. Analytics for the modern attack surface, observability for the modern defender. Check out Uptix by visiting Uptix.com. That's U-P-T-Y-C-S.com. Thank you, Uptix, for sponsoring this episode. So we got a trust-centric model now. We got a customer-forward model, which I'm, I'm absolutely loving here. We've talked about business alignment. Let's switch gears and get into the culture, right? The culture of information protection. We all, as CISOs, have that challenge of trying to get the rest of the business on board. How does that trust-centric model enable you when it comes to building that culture of information protection, you've got people in HR, you've got people in marketing, you, you know, hey, we're trust centric over here. And the, and the leaders of the business are like, yes, you are. That's great. But how does that <laughs> trickle down to, to Joe and Jane Average who are sitting there, maybe or maybe not protecting the information they're in charge of? How do, how do you get that cultural leap with trust centric? The mottos and the words can only get us so far because if we just kept saying to everyone, hey, we're trust centric they'd look at us and say, and so like, what does that mean? <laughs> right. Good for like, you. What, you know, like, that's good for you. That sounds really awesome. But like just saying it doesn't do anything. Being able to operationalize it is really, really key. One of the things I found is uh, working in an enterprise with so many disparate business units, being so active in M&A work, we've got a 
we're at a variety of maturity levels. We've got some parts of the organization that are very, very mature, and even some of their security practices are very mature. And so we give them autonomy and we say, why don't you guys go do this? And then we'll actually learn from you what you're doing and we'll take that and spread that across the enterprise. So we try to have that humility to say, there are going to be some parts of the technology organization that come up with great ideas for security and let's go adopt them. But then there's going to be other parts of the organization that aren't as mature. And if we just have this generic peanut butter approach that says, we're trust-centric, look at our PowerPoints, we're trust-centric, look at our PowerPoints, and we just give you the same updates and the same spiel over and over again, it's not going to be helpful. What we really need is measurement. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when I see the street signs and it says, you need to stop or you need to slow down or there's a curve ahead or there's a bump ahead, my immediate response is, yeah, I know that. I go here all the time. Like, that sign's really for someone else that really doesn't get it, that isn't paying attention. And then I see the speed limit sign and underneath it is a dynamically sign changing digital board that actually says your speed right now, Omar, is this. And so I typically drive with a lot of hubris. Right. I could be driving 70 miles an hour and I'm like, I'm not speeding. And I know I'm not speeding because I don't look at my own speedometer. Right. And I don't want to admit that I'm speeding, so it's just easier for me to look at the sign, ignore the fact that I'm speeding by not actually looking at my own measurement, which is right there. Right. But the moment the sign is in my face and it says, Omar, the speed limit's 60 and you're going 70 miles per hour, I can't ignore it. Right. And so that sort of just in time, that responsiveness, that feedback, that mirror that says, here's how you are doing versus, here's a generic signal to everyone saying, here's what you should do, becomes really, really important. And so we have two key measurements that we spread uh, and across the enterprise. We think of risk overall as the business unit risk. So we measure that, we use FAIR, and we break down our cyber risk into 10 or 11 different themes, and every part of the business gets its own overall risk, and it's actually quantified in terms of dollars and cents by theme. That's really good for the business unit leaders, not very actionable though. We then take that and we divide it up into two very generic categories. One is technology risk and one is people risk. Okay. The technology risk is a more of a measure of, do you have sufficient security controls deployed within your technology platform to meet the standards that we've set? So instead of saying, here's the standards and the, and the policies, just go follow them, we don't really do that. We just go focus on doing the actual measurement. So are all of your assets appropriately identified and accounted for? How good of a job are you doing controlling access? Do you have the necessary items on your endpoint in terms of securing the endpoints? Are you managing your vulnerabilities appropriately and getting those done in time? So secure index stands for safeguarding endpoints, eliminating vulnerabilities, controlling user access, responding to incidents, and event monitoring. So every platform, every part of our business, the print shop has their document solutions platform. The United Concordia Dental has their platform. Allegheny Health Network has their clinical platform. HM Health Solutions has their enterprise health solution platform. Every one of them gets a secure index that says exactly how they're doing against those six measures. And that gets updated every month. And then on the people side, we've got something called the cyber score, 
which is just a score from zero to 100 that tells every individual in the organization how they're doing when it comes to their cyber riskiness. It's sort of mirrored and inspired by the FICO credit score, which tells each of us our credit worthiness. This tells us our cyber riskiness. Any individual can go to cyberscore.highmark.com and they can see exactly what their cyber score is. If they happen to be leading people, they'll also get a view of what their entire organization's cyber score is. But the question you asked, Alan, is how do we actually make this happen? So the example I'll give you is one of our business units came to me a few years ago and they said, Omar, can we get more laptops? Can we give our teams more ability to travel around the world and remotely access our systems? And I said, you know, hold on, let me check something. And I went and looked at the cyber score for that, uh, for that area. And I said to the business unit president, you have the lowest cyber score of anyone, any business unit in the entire enterprise. By far, the strongest security control we have is people. People with a bent towards information protection right. is by far the single strongest security control. In your organization, it's not very strong. So if your score was higher, you'd have more of a culture of information protection, which is what that would measure. And I'd say, you know what? We can relax some of the technical controls because you've got such strong human con and culture controls. Within a year, he worked so hard. He talked about security, I was told, at almost every single staff meeting <laughs> that he had. And he's the president of business unit. And he was like, I, I don't want to be at the bottom. His score went from being in the 40s and 50s to now consistently being in the mid nineties. Nice. And he's like, why isn't it a hundred? And I'm like, it's okay if it's not a hundred, it's almost impossible for anyone to be on hundred. He's like, I, I wanna be higher. I want, But that sort of is how I now empower, I enable. I didn't go to him and say, you have to do this. Stop telling your people to stop, click on emails, do this, do this. Do this. I didn't nag him. I just said, here's the implications to your business. Here's the score, here's the measurement. Here's how you can make it better you decide what you want to do because it's your business. I want to ask you, and, and I get fair, and, and we've had two fair folks on my show. Uh, I'm not a fair guy myself, but I've got a lot of friends trying to convert me. <laughs> um, and so I get the measurement on that side of the house. But how about the measurement on this cyber score, the, you know, the FICO equivalent? How are you actually achieving that? What are you measuring? I'm assuming like your secure acronym that you've got a nice baseline or yeah. hopefully a, a, a catchy acronym for that one too. I love the secure we acronym, do. by the way. Yeah. Alan, so the cyber score is made up of eight measures and we divide up the eight measures into uh, two sections. So there's four measures that are focused on what can I do or what could I do? Could I access a high-risk website, mm -hmm. could I send confidential data outside of the enterprise via a thumb drive, via print, or via email, or via web? Those are really the four ways for data to leave the organization. And then there's four did I measures. Did I click on a phishing email? Did I report a phishing email? Did I have accesses that were high-risk but I actually didn't use for more than a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I'd say, Alan, is one of my learnings is I'm an engineer and every time I look at the cyber score, I think it's imperfect. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, I was so busy throughout those years and I had leaders on my team that just drove it because if it were up to the engineer and me, I would have never launched it. 
because I would have said, it's not perfect. It's not right. being updated. It's not real time. What about this? What about that? Can we really ask people to report phishing if they can't report phishing on their uh, mobile devices? Should we really wait until that happens? Because now everyone's at home and that's unfair. Yeah. I, I could give you a thousand reasons why it's incorrect and there's things wrong with it. And then right. the engineer in me, it just hurts. Analysis paralysis. Analysis press. But the leader side of me ended up almost inadvertently just delegating all of this to my team. And I was like, let's just see what happens. And it worked because the goal isn't to have perfect measurement. The goal isn't to be able to go to some statistician and say, I promise you, this is exactly the score. The goal is to provide enough directional guidance to people and leaders for them to feel empowered and take ownership of cyber risk for themselves and for their teams and want to do something with it. That's it. Like the goal was just, if you change behavior often enough, then you've changed culture because culture is just mindset and mindset is best measured by how we behave when no one tells us to, to do something. And one measure that I'm most excited about isn't, yes, the cyber score went up by about, goes up by about 10 points every year, but what does that mean? No one knows what that means. Last year, we had over 10,000 people complete training in our enterprise, not because it was required by regulators, not because Omar said so, not because the CEO said so, not because their boss said so, but because 10,000 people wanted their cyber score to be higher. That's incredible. What a great, great, great model. These are some really, truly innovative solutions you've come up with here. The secure acronym, the, the cyber score the doing it per individual, doing it per business unit. This is all some very clever, very creative stuff. I, I knew you'd be fun on the show. This is outstanding, man. So we're getting close to the end of the show, and I've got a question I ask every guest at the end, which is what surprises you the most in cybersecurity? You know, um, what surprises me the most, even to this day, is the extent to which it's all about people. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear the constant refrain, people process technology. In my experience, it's only people. Process and technology barely register as a footnote in my world. Because you could have the world's best process, you could have the world's best technology, and I could give you a dozen examples where that's been the case, and we've gotten exactly zero value. In every single case, people is the bedrock uh, people is the foundation. You've got to have the right people in the right role, doing the best work of their careers. And one of the things that we do in our organization is every leader in the organization has to identify one of their direct reports to run their team for an entire month. And so that applies to me as well. And last month, one of my directors was essentially running the organization. He was playing me for a month. And I said to him at the end, Matt, I said, what, what do you think? And he's like, Omar, you have a lot of one-on-ones. Like that seems to be like the only thing you really do. And I said, yeah, because what I've realized when I get in front of a large crowd and deliver PowerPoints or when I get project updates or when I go talk to vendors or when I like those things don't really move the needle as much. And I'm just like everyone else. I don't have enough time. And so when I think about the best use of my time, the best use of my time is how do I motivate, inspire, encourage, enable individuals to be successful? And I'm constantly surprised that every time something goes wrong, it's because of people. 
every right. time something goes right, it's because of people. Right. And to your one-on-one point, this ties into a theory I've always had, which is every big organization has the official leaders and then has the unspoken leaders. Yes. And those unspoken leaders, it takes a while, especially if you've been there eight years, you know who the heck they are in your shop. Yeah. But, but I try to, within just with even the first six months, hit the ground running. One of the first things I always do as a new CISO hitting the ground is try to find those folks. You've yeah. got this, this guy that's been in his department 20 years, who's the only one who knows all the processes and everyone comes to him for advice and guidance. Okay. He's on my one-on-one list, uh, yeah. just like his VP is, or just like his SVP is and trying to find all those people throughout the org. Here she is, here he is, you know, they're everywhere and yeah. they're not yeah. advertised. You have to ferret them out. But if you can capture them plus the official leadership, I think you've got a lock on your shop. I'll share maybe one quick uh, one quick thing that that we've that we've done to you know help sort of maintain that focus on people and not lose sight of that and not think that we're doing a really good job because our pulse survey scores are good or Gallup uh, employee engagement survey scores are good like numbers are numbers but how people feel sometimes is different than what the data data may show. We actually have something called a change agent network. So these are individuals within my organization that are spread across the organization. Everyone knows who they are, just like I've got a need for visibility into what's happening on my databases, what's happening on my network perimeter, what's happening on my mobile devices. Well, if people are so important, I need to know what's happening with my people. And so that's what I have. The change agents are within the security organization and they're just focused, they're human sensors focusing on how their colleagues are feeling. Everyone knows who they are, so there's nothing subversive. So if yeah. something isn't going well, you can go talk to your boss about it. You can go find a change agent and you could say, this thing sucks and everything is done anonymously. And I'll get a report for every single part of my organization against 15 people risks, how each area is doing. And we always have one or two areas that are red and we work with the respective leaders. We respect work with the people on the team, say, what's going on? What are the issues? What's driving it? Okay, we needed to communicate better. We needed to make an investment. We needed to add a resource. We needed to clarify this. We need to update the process. But how do we then go identify those issues when they're small rather than when they're big? Kind of like what the SOC does from a tech perspective. We do something very similar just from a people perspective, because if our people aren't feeling good, aren't engaged, aren't excited about the work they're doing, security program is not going to be that robust. Right. A people event that may turn into a people incident. (laughs) Yes. That's the way to think about it. Exactly. We'd rather address it when it's an event. That's great. Well, listen, Omar Kawaja, CISO at Highmark Health. Thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.